Hello and welcome to the latest episode of The Week That Really Was with me, John McGurk, and for once, no David Quinn, who sadly isn't around this week, but I have a replacement who I think uh, listeners will be delighted to hear from. She is the founder and CEO of The Countess. She is also a barrister at law, and I'm even going to pronounce her name right. It's Alicia Ieda de Bruin. Alicia, you're very welcome. How are you? Well done, John, with uh, my (laughs) ridiculously long name, and thank you so much for having me on. It's great to have you. Um, Regular listeners will know that we often talk on this program, David and I, when he's here, um, about sort of extremism and the lack of debate and um, the way in which things in this country just get railroaded through without that much conversation. And I don't think there's a better issue um, or an example of that than the topic on which uh, you guys have made a name or making a growing name for yourselves. So the Countess is named, as I understand it, after Countess Markovic. Is that correct? Yes, we see her as our figurehead and as a woman who um, transgressed all the boundaries and uh, constraints of her sex and um, class and race um, and was visionary and, you know, had a vision of a a republic. And we've ended up instead um, with the society where, um, you know, this issue, for instance, has been pushed um, out top down by it's an elite project that is being, you know, shoved like it's a radical reordering of society that nobody was consulted on and nobody voted for. And we are where we are. And so our job, you know, our core mission is to hide the impact of gender self-ID on women and children. And and initially, really, I think we've already kind of met this target as such, but we wanted to empower the people of Ireland to discuss this, to discuss uh, how it impacts society. Speaking about discussions, because I want to get this elephant in the room out of the way early on, because I think it's important to make this point in that you and I um, and people like us who who share these particular views, but also other views, tend to get lumped into this single uh, box in modern Irish discourse as being somehow kind of extremist cranks. Some people might, I don't know whether they've called you far right yet, Felicia, but they certainly called me that. Um, and I find it interesting that you and I are having this conversation, even though I suspect outside of this issue, at least maybe 10 years ago, you, we'd have agreed on almost nothing. Um, you are, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, you would, or what somebody would describe as a liberal feminist. You would have taken a very liberal view, for example, on gay marriage. I'm guessing we have differing views on abortion, for example. I'm guessing you might be a bit more amenable to environmental issues um, and the Green Party uh, on that whole range of issues than I would be. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. Um, you know, myself and the organization as a whole, I would say we are generally um progressives um sort of of the left traditionally and would yeah be pro-choice but you know we don't campaign on those issues we're a single issue campaign group um and we're the only um gender critical human rights and advocacy group that's incorporated in Ireland and so we feel it's our um role to empower ordinary people particularly parents to make their voices hard because um you know this is a very kind of complex esoteric uh, area and a lot of people are very concerned. There's a sense of disquiet, but they don't really mm-hmm. understand exactly what's going on. So, you know, it's our role to do the research for them, do the fact checking, and everything we do is evidence based and data driven. Um, right. But it's, I think it's true to say as well that, you know, you're, to your earlier point, like there is a global grassroots movement, which is, I classify as resistance to um, trans ideology or, you know, gender ideology. And it is largely women and it's largely women of the left. But there are other you know, groups as well. There's, you know, conservatives who disagree with this for different reasons. Um, 
but yes, as a as a campaigning group, as a human rights organization, I'd say we're generally um on the left. But one tiny correction, I'm not a liberal feminist because I would actually blame liberal feminism for a lot of a lot of this, because liberal feminism looks at, you know, um it's very much predicated on the choice of the individual. Are you a um, turf? Are you are you uh, sorry for, for for listeners who don't understand? One of the most common internet terms of abuse these days, which didn't exist just two or three years ago, is turf, which stands for trans exclusionary radical feminist. Are you a proud turf? Um, I think like many of us have sort of reclaimed this word. I mean, it's definitely used as a slur. It's certainly a misogynistic slur, but mm-hmm. sort of reclaimed it. But I would say it's slightly incorrect insofar as I wouldn't exclude um, a trans-identified female from a female-only space, only a trans-identified male. So it's incorrect in that regard. All right. Well, look, let's get into the meat of it. And let's talk in. I like to talk on this because our listeners, you know, it's, it's, it's an area where there's, turf is a good example. There are so many terms and phrases and and kind of technical language that people can get lost. So I just want to speak in plain terms. The law as it stands in Ireland since the passage of the Gender Recognition Act in 2015 is that I, John McGurk, can tomorrow walk into, I think it's a births, deaths and marriages office, but I could be wrong, but certainly an office of state, pick up a form, a gender identity form, fill it out and declare that I am Josephine McGurk. And from the moment I fill out that form and somebody stamps it, I am legally as much a woman as you are. And in or and sorry, just to finish the point because I think this is important, and this is where people sometimes miss the point. I am legally as much as a woman as you are, without taking a single female hormone, without changing a single part of my genitalia or physical makeup or anything. I can be exactly who I am today, except legally a woman tomorrow. Um, th- is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And not only that, that. Um, you know, the statutory provision, like the, it actually states that the preferred gender um, changes for all purposes. So that if a man, um, their preferred gender, if a male's preferred gender is female, their sex becomes female for all purposes. And for all purposes means that there's no caveats to this. There's no restrictions. You can use the safe spaces that are there uh, for women. You can play on a female sports team you can uh, run for office um, on a you know list, female only list. Like all of these measures are in society to help uh, women and girls have more equality and more of a life outside the home, um, in the public sphere. And you know we, we're sort of agreed that we need these measures. But what gender self ID does is it, it erodes immediately, erases all those protections and safeguards that are in place. So if I was the CEO of a company tomorrow and I had an all-male board, um, this is purely theoretical, and I'm not suggesting anyone would do this, but but it would be legally um, possible if the government introduced gender quotas for boards, for example, if I sneakily gave half the blokes on my board a bonus and told them to go in and fill a, in a gender recognition form to change their name to the female version of it, they would legally be women. Is that that's uh, And I would legally be in compliance with the law under the terms of the Gender Recognition Act. Or is that an absurd example? Yes, absolutely. It's not at all because the National Women's Council, on one hand, that's one of their core um, kind of evergreen campaigns is the gender quota on boards. However, at the same time, they have a a man, a father of three on their own board as a woman who identifies as a woman. So there's a real inherent you know, contradiction there. Let's talk about the practical impacts of this, because sometimes it just sounds ludicrous. Um, I'm a man. Uh, I, I, one of the things that drives me batty is that, uh, and I've talked about this before, and I'm sure you would probably agree um, that there's a sense sometimes in this country that women aren't safe uh, from men. 
in general. Uh, so I, I use the example of the the awful murder of Ashley Murphy last year, where in the aftermath of that, we had one of our patented national conversations in Ireland about the threat posed by men to women. Uh, and mothers were told to talk to their sons and we were all supposed to call out our friends if we saw any toxic behaviour from them. All correct, of course, and nothing wrong with that and, and it should be done. But it strikes me that there's this huge contrast between the attitude towards um, sort of blokey men um, as being potentially dangerous. And then those same men, once they say they're women, if they were to choose that, um, suddenly, if you say they might be dangerous to women, you are transphobic hate monger who doesn't understand people at all. Um, and and that, uh, but So talk to me about the actual safety implications and the ways where, where people can feel dangerous. Well, so firstly, I would say that it's not that men in general are a risk to women. And it's not that men blokey men are, it's that predatory men are. <laughs> and the reason that we separate the sexes, particularly in intimate spaces, where after all, a woman is vulnerable, if she's going to the toilet or she's changing her clothes, the reason we do that is because we as women cannot tell, society can't tell who are the, you know, the lovely men like your husband, like your brother, and who are the predators. And this is just basic safeguarding. So with gender self-ID, it's not, of course, it's not that trans-identified males are predatory, but it is that there are no, there's no safeguarding and we're eroding the very basic, blunt, you know, safeguarding norms in society. So therefore, you know, why, why wouldn't I, if I was um, predatory, why wouldn't I, you know, walk into that um, female-only space? Or indeed, what we're seeing increasingly in society is mixed sex spaces. So, for example, in Primark in the UK and Pennies in Ireland, there's been instances of men using the mixed sex fitting rooms but using their, putting their phones underneath the curtains and uploading that footage of girls and women, and obviously young girls use those shops quite a lot, and uploading that footage onto Pornhub. Yeah, and I think it's important to say here, I mean, one of the things I often hear thrown back in your direction and the direction of people who share, share I was going to say your views, but our views, because I agree with you on most of this stuff for, for, for clarity, Um but one of the things I heard here thrown back is that you're calling all trans women, i.e. men who transition into women, rapists or potential rapists. But I don't think that's the point you're making. I think you're saying that somebody, for example, let's take the example of somebody who has been trans identified for a very long time, since a very young age, has felt that they're born in the wrong body, they were should be a woman, has gone through hormone treatment, has seen psychiatrists and therapists, and has been living as a woman for 20 years and can now finally legally identify as one. Um, that's not the person you're calling a potential or a people in, in, in who make your argument are calling potentially dangerous. I think the point you're making is that person is treated exactly the same as I would be if I was a, a predatory man who decided I wanted access to a woman's changing room. And when you say there's no safeguards, what you mean is in law, there is no way of distinguishing between those two people. Is that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the way the statutory provision works is that there you know even a man on remand for sexual offenses can apply and has been granted by this state a gender recognition certificate i mean you know we need to let that sink in for a moment so even rapists even predatory rapists are allowed to get this gender recognition certificate and that's once... why we're, we end up in this position which is unconscionable in my view that there are three men who identify as women 
currently in the women's wing of Limerick Prison. And they're locked up women who are the most vulnerable women in society who quite, you know, in terms of criminal law, criminologists will say that the pathway to female incarceration is male violence. So this is a cohort of women who have lived through male coercive um, and physical sexual violence. Mm -hmm. And yet now they are in a space where there are men there and Paddy O'Gorman did an interview, uh, a documentary recently. Yeah, I saw it. And he showed the very real impact this is having on those women psychologically because um, if they complain, they're actually sent to their cells. I'm pausing to let that sink in. So if they complain that there is, a, 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 and, you know, sometimes the terminology in this is confusing, but, but let's be clear what we're talking about here. We're talking about somebody who has a penis and testicles and male physical strength who has previously used all of those things to rape women and um, being incarcerated with women who can't escape the building in which they're incarcerated with that person. And if they complain, they're sent to their cells. They're punished for feeling afraid. I think that's something that, that we should let um, the listeners understand. And, and this is mainstream policy. And if you denounce it, you're transphobic and so on and so forth. Um, I want to talk a bit about that, about that concept of transphobia, because that's that's something that comes up all the time. And particularly as it relates to younger people in schools, because you were saying before we came on air that there's um, huge pressure being exerted amongst on, on young, young girls in particular in schools to comply with um, this terminology. Yeah, I mean, um, social transition is a, a growing trend in Ireland and um, in Ireland and likewise, you know, the Tavistock um, figures show, but they're reflected globally, um, at least in the Anglophone West. Um, in the past 20 years, there's been a 5,000% increase in young girls wanting to identify. And it's important to note here that there's always been a cohort of typically young boys, it presents, it always presented between ages two and four. Um, they had gender dysphoria, which is, you know, an extreme sense of distress regarding their own sexed bodies. Did you say and between they, the ages of two and four? It used to present. So in the in Sorry. the court that always existed in society. I mean, society always had what we used to call transsexuals. Okay. But that's not what we what is um at play here. This is a new cohort where you're talking about girls in their teenage years suddenly presenting with gender dysphoria and wanting to transition. And the problem with that is especially is that these girls, once they go on um, puberty blockers, you know, that leads in, you know, to sex, um, opposite sex hormones. And if a girl, a young girl, a teenage girl is on um, testosterone for only three months, she will have male pattern baldness forever. It's irreversible and her voice will be like a man's voice forever and chest hair and back hair. These are irreversible changes. But if she continues on testosterone, she will end up sterile. Yep. Um, I, I, and, you know, this is an element that isn't isn't talked about and, and nobody wants to be gross. But it, it, some of the some of the some of the, the physical impacts on particularly young kids who transition and get top surgery or bottom surgery. And those two terms, I think, are ex self-explanatory in terms of what they involve in terms of changing your sex um some of the physical impacts are are, are lifelong for example in male to female um it involves um dilating yourself for the rest of your life because your body thinks it's been wounded and is trying to heal um and i don't think there's enough discussion about that uh, in the context of this because you're told that any discussion of the downsides of the physical harms um is inherently 
um, discriminatory, which I think is I think is is an incredibly dangerous thing to say in an environment where so many young people and so many and there's such a growth in the number of young people um, going down this road. Uh, I, I, one of the things that strikes me is that if you look at, for example, the percentage of gay people, and we all know there have always been gay people, uh, homosexuality is we're told and we've no reason to, to doubt, and an eight condition in that you know people are, for want of a better word, born gay. But the percentage of gay people has, by and large, stayed fixed over time, even as social acceptability of that has grown. So there were there are as many gay people today as there were in 1960 when it was illegal to be homosexual and you could be sent to prison for it. But with transgender people, we don't see that pattern. We're see, It's not that the numbers remain constant. It's that there has been this enormous explosion in the numbers of transgender people in the last, um, not even 15, 20 years, in the last three, four, five years. Why do you think that is, Leisha? Um, I mean, I think it's um, an ideology that has taken hold. And as I said, particularly taken hold with that cohort of young girls um, in in like in the West. And I think that's happening for a number of reasons. But it's not least that, you know, teenage girls have always historically um, transmitted and expressed each other's psychic distress, psychological distress um, communally. You know, we mm-hmm. saw that in... Um, um, you know, things like bulimia, um, hysteria, um, fainting fits, self-hopping, anorexia. So, the you know, arguably these are exactly the same girls. Um, it's just that now this is what they're doing. Um, and arguably this is also self-harm. Why? I'm sorry, you might not know why, but why do you think? Well, no, I mean, I think and there are a number of reasons. So firstly, um, According to the data um, that came out of the Tavistock um, case, the judicial review, you know, 80 percent or at least the vast majority of young people who are to transition, who want who opposite sex ideation, they tend to be same sex attracted because naturally enough, people who are gay, lesbian or bisexual tend to be gender nonconforming. But rather than, you know, being supported to be a lesbian, you know, that that young girl will type into her laptop, uh, I think I'm a lesbian, and she will just be, she'll just get a deluge of trans ideology and propaganda that she's actually, she's not a lesbian, she's actually a boy trapped inside a girl's body. I think also that since the dawn of um, the smartphone and social media, I think young girls are saturated by the sense, this kind of suffocating sense of having to be perfect and having to be polished and to present this glossy image at all times that those of us who grew up in the 80s didn't ever you know we we just didn't have to cope with that or deal with that and I think also as well porn is a huge driver because you know the the culture has become so pornified especially for young girls that they just want an escape from it it just seems too daunting uh too scary too difficult and they want out of womanhood if that's what womanhood is they want out of it yeah that last point I think is a is a is a is a fascinating one um because I mean I'm 39 I'm nearly 40 when I was, so it's 20 years ago since I was a teenager, basically. And I remember being a teenager because I'm a normal, red-blooded male. I, I like women. I always found them attractive and fascinating. But when I was a teenager, porn, it's not the porn wasn't a thing, but it was incredibly hard to access. Um, and it was, it was um, you know, you, you could reach the age of 17 or 18 and never see much more than, say, a, maybe a, a glossy image of a naked woman. Whereas now, at, at ages much younger than that, 10, 11, 12, 
Um, I think 12, you were saying, is the median access, median age at which young kids access pornography. Um, they are seeing, um, and I'm sorry for listeners who are sensitive here, but they're seeing gangbangs and things like that, which uh, is just, uh, it, that must be terrifying if you're a young child. Um, it must look like violence. I mean, it is violence, much of it is violence, but it must, even even ordinary sex must look like violence to, to kids at that age when they're exposed to it. Um, I mean, 84% of porn is um, does show violent and degrading acts mm-hmm. um, on women. And so what young people are, you know, being told, the message they're giving, they've been given is that this is sex, this is normal, this is what you should be doing. And that's mm-hmm. extremely damaging to them, especially when they're still developing their frontal, you know, their cortex, frontal lobes and their, you know, faculties of reasoning. Um but I think as well, you know, we have to view this as a public health crisis that we've sort of slept walk into. And we should we should we should be unafraid to grasp the nettle and deal with this. You know, uh, no, sorry, just to clarify, are you talking about porn or, or transgender? I'm talking about porn. You know, your your point to how, you know, when you were younger, it was a glossy image of a naked woman. I mean, John, that would now be a shoot in vogue. Like that's how yes. much things have changed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's uh, it's 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 extraordinary, and over a very short period of time, we're talking twenty years. And I'm not exaggerating because, like, I, when I was a teenage boy, I was a teenage boy. You know, and this stuff was not around, um, and probably it's good that it wasn't. But it 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 definitely is around now in 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 enormous quantities, and in in, in incredibly, as you say, degrading ways at times and there's an established pathway i'm sorry this is slightly off topic but there's an it's something i i think is so important and i've talked about there is an established pathway in the literature where 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 young boys in particular will start off with it's it's like drug addiction you start off with something soft and and very soon you're on to really extreme stuff um just and, to, and that's you know, precisely that's precisely why now things like uh choking are becoming you know, normalized in the culture because it's filtered in from porn. And that wasn't um, possibly prevalent in porn maybe five years ago, but because the, you know, it's driven by profit after all. So the producers want to, you know, get more clicks and get more viewers. So they'll, you know, the what what is the dial is always shifting yes, towards and, the more extreme. And the flip side of that is, and we'll move on from this discussion in a second, but I just want to say I am um, I, I have a TikTok account for my sins, which I, you know, nothing good comes from TikTok except funny parrots and funny animals and that sort of stuff. But when oftentimes when you're scrolling through, there's this thing on TikTok called the For You page where it promotes content. It will it, it thinks that people of your age group and what have you will be interested in. And the number of girls in their sort of 18 to 22 range who are on TikTok all day posting videos, you know, uh, talking about being choked or various other things like that. It's not technically pornography, which is banned. But 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 it, it presents an image, and I suspect a lot of young women are following those accounts of what the ideal young woman should be. And the ideal young woman in the in the imagery presented um, on a lot of these social media apps is um, basically a, a, a very feminized, um, sex mad nymphomaniac. Essentially, is 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 what they're told they have to be. And I think that must be very damaging for for young women, particularly in the sort of pre, in the te- young teenage years um and, and nobody's talking about it or maybe they are and i'm not hearing them but i don't hear a lot of people talking about it yeah and is it any wonder then that we have a co- we see a cohort of young girls who are who want to opt out of this you mm-hmm. know who are saying if this is what it means to grow up to be an adult woman i don't want i don't want it 
And yes, a lot of the 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 what you might call the transgender activism seems to be driven by sort of um, middle aged men of about my age who've suddenly realised that they always wanted to be a woman. Um, so it's almost like there are two parallel pandemics going on. On the one hand, there's the sort of um, soft, nicey, you know, um, young girls becoming boys, which is presented as positive and empowering and all the rest of it. And on the other hand, there's this quite angry cohort, it seems to me, of sort of middle-aged biological men who've decided that they are a lady now, and uh, you are the worst person in the world if you doubt their word. Um, and, and it's a toxic combination, isn't it? Yeah, and I would argue that both of those cohorts bear no real relation to each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, one is um, distressed, um, confused young teenage girls who, you know, if this hadn't been bulimia, if this wasn't gender, it would be some other thing that they would use to express their pain. Mm-hmm. And then you have an older cohort of men. And my big question is always, where are all the women? You know, if this is the new sort of frontier in being gay or lesbian or bisexual, then in that, if that's the case, where are all the women? Where are all the women in the 50s and 60s saying, now I can finally be myself, I can be a man? They don't exist. Yeah. Uh, do you think there's, uh, uh, and again, I want to emphasize here, because it's very, very important. To, to, I mean, I, I was, years ago, I was my first foray into politics, which should have been my last without any sense, was I was an officer with the Union of Students in Ireland. And I do remember dealing with trans people. And I never doubted for a second that their their issues were real and genuine and that they should be treated with compassion and, you know, call them the names by which they wish to be called and all of that sort of stuff. But um, when you look at the explosion in the UK, for example, of stories of um, the huge rise in sex crimes committed by women, we put it that way. And then you find that an awful lot of these sex crimes are committed by women, but they're not biological women, they're former males. Um, and I see a lot of people online saying that they they think for some people this is some kind of form of fetish almost. Do you think there's anything to that or is it? I mean, I think, um, well, I think like it's fair to say that historically, you know, there was always um, such a, you know, a, a, t- a type of man who used to be called a transvestite who took sexual pleasure and became aroused by wearing women's clothes. I mean, where have they all gone? Have they just disappeared off the face of the earth? I yeah. mean, it's common sense that they still exist. And, you know, if you look at the Tenney website, that transvestism, it does come under the trans umbrella. I mean, I'm not, there's no conspiracy here. Like it's there in black and white on their website. So what that means is then you're talking about straight men who are fully intact, who have penises, who enjoy, get sexual enjoyment out of wearing women's clothes. And if they're under the trans umbrella, that means logically that the argument is that they should be in women's spaces. I don't think reasonable people agree with that. No. I mean, I how don't. did we get here? I don't either. But anyway, let's come back to sort of legislative. The, the, uh, we're, 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 we're floating around, but I think it's an interesting conversation. Let's come back to the sort of legislative debate, because we see this in Scotland at the moment, where there's a proposal essentially to copy almost word for word the Irish uh, law, except with the proviso that they want to go younger. They want people to be able to self-identify from the age of 16. And of course, that's that's still quite high because there are some Irish activists who want that to be as low as eight years old, I think. Um, what struck me is that there was, obviously in Scotland, because we do live in an environment where progressivism is is ultimately dominant, the law did pass the Scottish Parliament, but there was a vote and there was significant opposition to it and there was public debate and all the rest of it. How did we get to a position where this is the law of the land in Ireland and, and basically nobody knows? Uh, or not, maybe a growing number of people are, are, are know about it, but I still don't think most people know what the law is here. Well, I mean, it's funny you say about, you know, there was a, a vote because in Ireland there was actually no division. 
you know, deputies were not made to say yay or nay. Um, firstly, secondly, there was just a sense of general agreement, but also at the very last minute when the clock was ticking down, there was only less than four weeks left. Um, there was a huge switch from um, a more and the medical model it's known as where there is, you know, you have to go in front of a panel of lawyers and doctors, you have to live in your preferred gender, whatever that means, but for two years. So there is just a sense of a filter or a sense of gatekeeping. But in in um, Ireland, what we have is full self ID. Which means that there are there are no there are no caveats whatsoever. But in terms of the the issue as it relates to what you you call the medical model, I think that that um, that's very interesting. So the initial proposal was essentially what I think a lot of people will consider to be common sense, which is you may change your gender and get a new passport and all those other things that people complain about not being able to do, but you have to you know there has to be some safeguard where a doctor says and and, and affirms. Yes, we've assessed this person that this genuinely is the best course of action for them and their mental well-being. Um, and there had to be a, a sort of um, a, a line in the sand drawn where somebody would say, uh, we think this is genuinely in this person's best interests. Um, and they just ditched that. They said, no, it's just it, it's it's if you want to be, you are. Um, and, and, and when in the process did that happen? It's fun. it's actually really interesting to trace the kind of case law and you know the providence of um, the GRA. Um, so we were actually sort of behind other countries insofar as we hadn't you know dealt with this. Um, and the FOI case came up, and in the meantime, in fact, there was a UK um, case. The, the, the FOI case. The, sorry, the FOI case was Lydia FOI. Is that right? Yes, yeah, and in that case, in fact. Um, there, the decision was, and you know, I've read the judgment, and there's a line in the judgment which I think is so important. Where the judge says that the, a passport should not be, um, you know, a travel document through about one's travels through life, and that there is a, a very important public interest in states not falsifying these records and keeping records of birth. But okay. what happened in the meantime was the the Goodwin case came about. Now. Goodwin changed everything, but what happened in Ireland was that there was an overcorrection. So Goodwin was about a post-operative transsexual, as they were called then, and their right to um, privacy around their name as it pertained to um, national insurance and also the right to marry. Now, once same-sex marriage came in, that became moot, the right to marry. But the at no point in that judgment were same were single sex spaces measure um, mentioned at all. There was no sense that this would impact mm-hmm. female only spaces. And what happened? That case was reinstated, so Ireland had to comply with this decision. But it went way beyond the decision. It is you know it was an overcorrection really. And in it any case. Beyond- the law uh, went beyond the problem that it needed to solve. If you see what I mean. And in any case, that problem could have been solved without self ID. Um, am I right? I mean, if if the problem is simply documents, then you know that doesn't mean that you have to abandon the sort of medical certification process. You could have done that without going down the road of self ID. Although, to be honest with you, I mean, where I come from on this one is as somebody who's a, a bit of an amateur historian in his free time is that I find it extraordinary that we have a law in Ireland that says you can change history. In other words, if your birth certificate says you were born male, that 30 years later, you can say, actually, no, the doctor who was there at my birth uh, got it wrong. And he actually identified me as being born female or vice versa. That to me seems to be an extraordinary assault on basic historical records um, that shouldn't be permitted. And that's not saying that somebody who uh, feels that they shouldn't be allowed to live in a particular way. But I don't think your right to live in a particular way 
outweighs um, what essentially is calling doctors liars 30 years ago when you were born, saying that they, they misidentified your biological sex. But that's where we are. Let's talk a little bit about schools, Leisha, um, because one of the things that's happening at the moment is there's a huge emphasis, I think, on um, teaching um, transgenderism or gender ideology in schools. Uh, the National Curriculum Assessment Authority is making moves on this. And you were saying to me um, off air, I think, that that they're not just teaching this as an, uh, as a, an argument or a set of beliefs, but they want it taught as fact. Is that correct? Yeah, it may come as a surprise to your listeners that um, the NCCA, their plans for the draft curricula, you know, junior and senior, is to embed gender identity and gender theory, but not as what it is, is which is a highly contested radical set of ideas, you know, that one can be born in the wrong body, that a man can turn into a woman, a woman can be a man, etc., but to teach it as fact so that, you know, a young person who, after all, is a captive audience and has been entrusted by the parents of that young person to the school, um, you know, will be indoctrinated as such. And we have very clearly, you know, seen this as a huge issue from the, from the start. And we have a schools and safeguarding working group that works on this area specifically. And that's kind of two headed. So one part would be. What happens, you know, if a boy who identifies as a girl wants to use the girls' toilets in a co-ed school? But then also the other side of this is indoctrination. And we take that very seriously. And we've done a lot of deep work into this and research. And when we um, did, a, you know, a deep examination of the draft curricula, uh, that's what we found, you know, a real attempt to embed gender identity, expression and theory into the curricula. And the most recent... Uh, consultation showed clearly that the NCCA is trying to merge RSE and SPHE. And the, the problem with that is, in particular, is if they do that, RSE can be taught throughout the whole curriculum. So it'll actually make it impossible for parents to invoke what are actually quite robust rights under the Constitution, Article 42 and Section 9 of the Education Act. You know, in Irish law, it's unlawful for the school not to um you know uh, to to come between the parent and the child when it comes to that that primacy yeah, as the role for, of the educator of the child in this in these matters just so for, sorry just for the matter. just for the benefit of listeners or uh, sphe is sexual political and health education and rse is religious and social education is that correct yes and um currently you know you can opt out you can say i don't want my child taught these um ideas and opt out but if they this move goes ahead to merge both those subjects, that'll be logistically impossible. Yeah, because one of them is on the Leaving Cert curriculum, I think, SPHE, right? Is on, uh, and, and the other one isn't because it's religion, um, unless I'm mistaken. It's been a long time since I looked at the curriculum, but I, I think I'm broadly right in thinking that that religious and religious education is obviously sort of optional, um, whereas the other one isn't. Um, so that's, well, it's relationship and... Um, oh, sorry, relationship. My apologies. Yeah, and, and uh, sex education. And that can be taught, you know, in different parts of the curriculum. Okay. That's the issue. But, you know, when we looked at the draft curricula, um, what we saw were, you know, in particular relating to the resources around gender identity and sexual orientation, they very much promote homophobia. They say things like, you know, lesbians are not exclusively attracted, sexually attracted to men, but mostly, or sorry, to women, but mostly. Um, it's predicated very much on sex, the stereotyping, 
it affirms social and medical transition of young people and um, it completely contradicts this can, curriculum can you, because obviously you, it says you, a man can, can turn into a woman can you just say that again did i hear you right because i mean i'm learning stuff here are you telling me that that it, there's a proposed curriculum to say that lesbians are not exclusively attracted to women yeah it expressly says that it says mostly attracted to women but that's i mean one of the things i mean i don't um have many lesbian friends but I, i've had several over the years who, who constantly say that one of the most damaging things that happens to to them as out lesbians is men approaching them convinced that they can be the one and i'm sorry now to be gross but the one to turn them straight um and, and this myth that, that that seems to me to to reinforce that myth you know that that there's a spark of a straight woman in every lesbian born of a better word um and in our view, you know, lesbians are the ones who are very much, I would say, caught in a pincer movement between, on one hand, young lesbians, young butch lesbians in particular, being told, you're not a butch lesbian, you're actually a man, you're actually a young man trapped in a woman's body. And then on the other hand, uh, adult lesbians who are dating, been, you know, under pressure socially to accept the penis. So, you know, these, this is really how, why one of our core pillars of concern of our organization from the very start has been lesbian erasure and when we have a working group on lesbian erasure which is you know teamed by lesbians when you say um lesbians being pressured to accept the penis you mean essentially that biologically intact males who identify now as women to use the correct terminology essentially saying to lesbians you have to find me attractive or you're transphobic is that absolutely and that is very persuasive you know when you have a cohort of young lesbians when when they have been indoctrinated to believe that this is you know p- part of that the t has been latched so firmly onto the lgb in their minds that it's transphobic to to think otherwise but sexual attraction and i'm sorry i know we're going over stuff that might be seem quite basic to you but to a lot of our listeners this might be new sexual attraction is not based on identity it's i mean there are billions of women in the world. I'm not attracted to all of them, but the ones I am attracted to, I'm attracted to because they're women. Um, and it's because they're, you know, it's, it's a biological thing. I'm attracted to them from a sexual reproduction point of view. And I presume the same goes for straight women. And I presume the same goes for gay males who are attracted to, to other men. And whereas, whereas this ideology seems to be redefining it to say, to say that it's, it's that if you're, if your physical attraction to somebody isn't there you should be attracted to them based on what they say they are and if you're not there's something wrong with you um you know the ncca published the results of that consultation the first one that we did and um it was remarkable because we had gathered together we'd done the research and we put together a toolkit for parents to use to do their own submissions and teachers and students mm-hmm. and what they said was they had sort of this com- complaint that it was too um you know, homogenized and it seemed like there maybe had been some online petition or some kind of organized um, approach. And in fact, there was, it was our toolkit because we see our role in all of this as, you know, we will do all the research, we'll check all the facts, we'll research the law, and then we'll put together accessible materials that parents can use to make their voices heard because they do have real powers. They just need to sort of step into their power and invoke those rights. So for instance, in our toolkit, we said, you know, this new course, the new draft curriculum is homophobic. Sexual orientation is based on, as you just said, biological sex. It's not based on gender identity. So lesbians are only attracted to females and a gay male is only attracted to males. 
And to say otherwise is to roll back on the hard-won rights and recognition that the gay rights movement won. And I must say, through debate and through conversation, not in this way. This has been done under the radar. Yeah, I, I just find it astonishing that if somebody like me was to make a statement like lesbians are, are not oh, attracted mainly to women, but not exclusively, I mean, I'd be hung. And, 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 and by the way, correctly so, because that's a false statement, but it would be assumed that I was motivated from some kind of right-wing Christian conservative homophobia. Whereas whereas these people are saying this, uh, yeah, I, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary state of affairs. And it's interesting because I was going to ask you to explain more about trans ideology, which is a term you use, and what it says, because it seems to me to be to say some really extraordinary things. So uh, there's this, essentially now they're teaching kids that they can essentially choose their own gender and, and and they're not even limited to two genders anymore i mean there's any no i mean it, you 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 go on on tiktok or one of these social media apps and you find people inventing new genders almost every day and all of it seems to conform with the basic principles of trans ideology um i mean we would say that you know for for gender ideology biological sex is the construct and gender is real but it's quite clear that, in fact, the opposite is true, is that gender is a construct. Because mm-hmm. gender, what is gender? It's 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 just a performance of a role. It's your personality. You know, who's actually gender conforming? Actually, 100%, nobody. So none yeah. of this is real. It's and it, and it changes from culture to culture and from era to era. Whereas biological sex is immutable. There are only two sexes. You know, this is how we've pro- procreated as a species. We know, you know, that if a man and woman procreate the woman is the one who gets pregnant and it's kind of a reversal of everything that we've been taught over the last 20 years isn't it because it used to be that it, you know the idea that little girls played with barbie and little boys played with gi joe was the classic gender stereotype that we had to erase that you know a little boy who played with a barbie was just as much as a boy and and, and vice versa and i th- thought that was that makes sense i mean because lots of boys have sort of feminine interests and vice versa. Whereas now we're being told essentially that if you're a little girl and you play with G.I. Joe, you must be a boy. And if you're a little boy, you play with Barbie, maybe you're maybe you're a girl. Um, so it's actually re- it, it's flipping it all back to the way it was in 1960, um, except now you have the opportunity to change. And it's funny, you know, when we look back, it was actually such a very finite period of time post sort of the second wave of feminism where you know, it was truly almost gender free as in gender role free, you know, in the sort of 80s, let's say, where um, little girls had a pudding bowl haircut. They wore corduroy mm-hmm. jeans and a jumper. They climbed trees. They played Lego. There was no such thing as girls Lego and boys Lego. I think what we saw is since the 90s has been this emergence of princess culture for little girls. You know, if you go walk through the aisles of a toy shop, there's literally the blue aisle and the pink mm-hmm. aisle you know it's mm-hmm. very polarized and so no wonder um it's more and more young people who don't fit into those very rigid boxes are then saying oh maybe i'm not the gender i am yeah it's astonishing uh, i want to talk a little bit about something slightly uh controversial but i think it's a fair question because um as i might have mentioned uh, uh, earlier um i i was once uh, an officer with the union of students in ireland and at that time it was um lgbtq um, then him LGBTQ plus and so on and so forth, and it's the it's the merging of the T onto the LGB that I'm interested in because it strikes me that in schools obviously it's universally accepted. I mean, there's 95 percent acceptance, or probably more than that in society, that homophobia is wrong, and that if you are 
Uh, if you bully somebody because they're gay or whatever, then then that's deeply, deeply wrong. Um, or if you criticize somebody or make somebody feel different because they're they're gay, it's deeply wrong. And I think that's correct. I think that's the way it should be. But in a lot of schools these days, in, in one school I'm aware of, and I know it's not unique, um, there are there's Pride Week every single year, and kids wear rainbows and they 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 they. they you know, they celebrate diversity and homosexuality um, and sorry, sexual orientation, I should say, rather than just homosexuality. Um, but when you add the T onto that, is there not a huge risk that a girl in a bathroom who sees a fully intact male in that bathroom and inherently feels unsafe is going to feel scared to say something because she's essentially being taught that her own instincts are transphobic? Yes, absolutely. And that's precisely why we haven't had the debate that we needed to have, because, you know, everything was transphobic. Any kind of raising of any um, real concerns around this, the impact of this on women and children in particular, but all of society as a whole was deemed transphobic. And it's a really good way to shut people up. But I think hopefully, you know, due to our work and the work of other groups in this space, people are now empowered to discuss this. And I don't mean just discuss it on Twitter. I think in real life, people are having these conversations, mm -hmm. you know, in the pub, at the school gates and the genie is out of the bottle in Ireland. And I, and I do want to say as well, you know, we're not an anti-trans organization and we fully respect the rights of trans identified people to live their best life in peace and without any discrimination whatsoever with regard you know, their jobs or housing, and they should be able to present how they want. And, you know, our Red Sea poll that we ran in July 2021 showed exactly that, like a, a very wide scale um, tolerance of gender expression. But at mm -hmm. the same time, Irish people, and this is our position, do not want to see se single sex provision separated on the basis of gender identity. They want to remain, they want those spaces and sports teams and prizes and lists they want them organized on the basis of biological sex because they know, and you know, the majority of people agree with this, that biological sex matters when it comes to certain parts of society. And what we've done with the GRA is go too far in, you know, in, in the wrong direction to almost throw the baby out with the bathwater with this sense of this is the new human rights paradigm. We want to be on board. We want to be the first. We want to be the best. But we didn't pause to think, how does this impact other stakeholders? How does it impact women and children and all of society? Well, listen, I think this has been a great conversation. I am delighted that you are here. I think you might even have been an upgrade over David, but don't tell him I said that. Um, listen, Leisha, it's been brilliant to have you. Uh, we are sadly out of time, but I hope this conversation for our listeners has been enlightening because this is an area of society that sometimes this conversation gets relegated to the internet and people who know loads about it. And sometimes it can be a really challenging conversation, I think, for parents and for people who aren't political nerds, will we say, to get involved in. And um, that's why I thought uh, in the absence of David this week, this was a this was a good conversation for us to have. So, Alicia, thanks so much for being on the show. It's been great having you. I hope you'll come back to us at some stage. Um, but in the meantime, folks, that was the week that really was. <laughs>